Welcome back, friends. Dr. Bill Creasy here. I've titled our next lesson, Sin Enters the World. Every good story has a conflict, and sin is the conflict that must be resolved in the Bible. We define sin not as an act that one commits, but as a condition one is in a condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful action. In other words, if I had been in a right relationship with God, I wouldn't have held up the 7-Eleven. Like an infectious disease, sin is subtle, sin escalates, sin cascades down through generations, and ultimately, sin results in death. The entire story of Scripture tracks the progress and the ultimate defeat of sin and death. In the end, our story comes full circle with redemption and God's creation of a new heaven and a new earth. This is a fabulous story, gang. So once again, sit back and enjoy. And make sure you tell your friends about the One Year Bible Podcast. Oh, and be sure to give me five stars. We want to get this podcast on the map. Welcome to the Global Classroom of Logos Bible Study with Dr. Bill Creasy. Our lesson is about to begin, so get comfortable and open your Bibles. All right, welcome back. We're going in today at Genesis chapter 3. Now, you recall, last time we met, we laid an introduction to the Bible, and we found that the Bible is based upon, uh, our study of the Bible is based upon four foundational principles. The Bible is rooted in geography, it emerges from history, it is in its final finished form, a unified literary work, and it is the Word of God. And we also found that there were four cultural assumptions about the world of the Bible that the Bible takes place, the story of the Bible takes place in a cultural world of its own time. And that world is a patriarchal society, men run everything. That world is a monarchical society, every society had a king. That world is a polytheistic society, everyone believes in many gods. And that world is a slaveholding society. And we can't take our own cultural values and impose them upon the world of the Bible and try to read the Bible in any reasonable way, imposing our own values upon it. We have to read it from within its own cultural context. So we laid all that out by way of introduction, and then we moved into Genesis 1 and 2, the story of creation. And we found in Genesis 1 that the creation story was very different from the creation stories in other surrounding cultures. Other surrounding cultures, the creation story tended to be one of chaos and war and humanity being the cosmic fallout of a tremendous battle. Whereas in Genesis 1, we saw that creation was a very balanced, harmonious act. One act of creation led to the next, which led to the next, which led to the next. And at each act of creation, God said, it is good. And at the final act of creation, day six, the creation of humanity, God stepped back and said of the whole creation, it is very good. 
and on the seventh day he rested from all the creating that he had done. And we found in that creation story that we had a God's eye point of view. The name of God in chapter 1 is Elohim, a big, strong, masculine, plural noun, a noun of majesty. And we also saw that that name, that plurality, perhaps suggests the first hint of the triune nature of God, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the point of view is decidedly a God's eye view. Then in chapter 2, from a literary perspective, we turned around, dropped down into day 6, and we witnessed the creation of humanity from man's point of view, from the garden point of view. And we found that the name of God in chapter 2 is Yahweh Elohim, Y-H-W-H. It's an intimate covenant term and an appropriate term to be used by Adam and Eve with God because they are indeed in an intimate covenant relationship with God. And we found at the end of Genesis chapter 2 that God and his two creatures, Adam and Eve, were in love with one another and in a very intimate relationship. When God created woman from the side of the man and the man woke up and looked at her, he broke into poetry for the first time in the Bible. We read at the very end of chapter 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. He looked at her, she looked at him, they simply saw themselves in a loving, intimate relationship together and with God. If only the story could end there. I'm on page 10 of a 2,000-page book. But it would be nice to end there, I suppose. But every story has conflict. Every good story has a conflict. And our story has a conflict as well. And that conflict enters in chapter 3 of Genesis, when sin enters the world. So turn to chapter 3 at verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. But we need to pause there for a moment because we haven't met any serpent up to this point. Who is this creature, this serpent, who is the most crafty or subtle or shrewd of all the creatures God had made? And notice, he is a created being. He's not equal to God. He's a created being created by God. Who is this character? Well, we learn definitively who he is at the very end of our story in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, as the curtain comes down on the story, the great climactic battle of Armageddon is over, the dust has settled. And we read in Revelation chapter 20 verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So we read in Revelation 20 at verse 2 that that ancient serpent we meet in Genesis 3 at the beginning of the story, 
that ancient serpent is the devil or Satan. And who is that character? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ himself refers to this character over in Luke chapter 10. If you turn over with me to Luke chapter 10 at verse 17, Jesus has sent 72 of his followers out into the world to take the gospel message to the world. They go out and they are amazed at the reaction people have. And when they come back, he debriefs them. And they, they report in and they tell him. Here in chapter 10, uh, verse 12, the 72 returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. You wouldn't believe what happened out there. And Jesus replied in verse 18, and this is the key verse. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now that's intriguing. When does that occur? We don't see it happen in the Bible. Now we have allusions to the event, and in the book of Revelation, we have a flashback in our story to a great war in heaven that predates Genesis chapter 1. It gives us the backstory of how our story begins. We have an allusion, however, on two occasions. One in Isaiah chapter 14. Turn over to Isaiah 14 with me and we'll get a look. In Isaiah 14 at verse 12, God says, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once lay low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. It's an allusion to a past event. And we have it again in Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel, I'm sorry, chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. Now in this chapter, Ezekiel is among the captives taken to Babylon in the second wave of attack by the Babylonians on Jerusalem in uh, 597. Ezekiel is writing from Babylon and he's speaking about the king of Tyre. Tyre is a major deep water port on the Mediterranean coast in modern day Lebanon. When David became king and David consolidated power and brought together a loose confederation of 12 tribes into a united monarchy, he did so through conquest. He conquered his land and he took control of it from the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, and so on. And the battles that David fights all of them are to control the trade routes, the Via Maris, the King's Highway, and the three major linking roads. Once David does that, he controls the land distribution channels for the ancient economy of goods being shipped from Egypt north into Europe and Asia. Once David does that, Hiram, king of Tyre, who controls the maritime trade routes, 
makes a treaty with David and together they control the entire distribution system for the ancient economy. When David dies and his son Solomon becomes king, the very first thing Solomon will do is marry Pharaoh's daughter. And by doing so, integrates, vertically integrates, the entire ancient economy, and he controls it. He also reinforces the treaty with Hiram, king of Tyre, for control of the maritime routes in the Mediterranean, and he and Hiram open a fleet of trading ships out of the Gulf of Aqaba, and they sail to the far orient and begin trading there as well. That's where all the great wealth comes from. Well, in Ezekiel, God is speaking of the king of Tyre. Now, this is not Hiram, king of Tyre. He was back in David and Solomon's day. That would have been David's king from uh, 1010 to 970 and Solomon from 970 to now 930. Ezekiel is writing in the 590s, so it's half a millennium later. But Tyre is still a major deep water port that controls the maritime trade routes. And because of that, it becomes a very wealthy city, a very wealthy city indeed that controls an enormous amount of the world's trade. And God speaks a prophecy against Tyre. The Babylonians are going to attack Tyre, and Tyre will finally fall to Alexander the Great. But here in Ezekiel 28, at verse 12, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, and he said in verse 12, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says, you know, king of Tyre, you remind me of someone I used to know. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, in the garden of God. Well, clearly the king of Tyre wasn't in the garden of Eden. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. King of Tyre, you remind me of someone I used to know the most glorious, the most beautiful of all the angels. Angels are created beings. Angels have free will just as humans have free will. And there was one angel, Lucifer, who chose to rebel against God, who took a third of the other angels into his confidence, 
and launched a war on God. He wanted to be God. We read about that in a flashback in Revelation, giving us the backstory. Well, the English poet, 17th century English poet, John Melton, uses that very thing for the subject of his epic poem, Paradise Lost. If we turn back to Genesis chapter 1, at verse 1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, we looked at that in some detail last time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, now, at the present time, at the opening of our story, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. John Melton takes as the basis for Paradise Lost the gap between Genesis 1 verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning, a long time ago, God created the heavens and the earth. But now, the heavens and the earth were formless and empty and void and darkness over the face of the deep. That's when the war occurs between verses 1 and 2. And the earth is left as a battlefield, drenched in blood and smoke and debris. And God clears it out. Let there be light. And then he reshapes it. We read in Paradise Lost in book one at the very beginning, as this war intensifies, God casts out Satan. And in a tremendous set of verses, Melton writes, him, Satan, the Almighty hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal sky. And down he plunges for seven days and seven nights, and he splashes down into a lake of fire, broken, battered, and in torment. And in torment, in suffering, he raises his enormous body off this lake of fire, stretches his bat-like wings, and takes to the air and vows revenge. I will get even. And how does he do it? God has recreated the world, and he has declared it good. And the final act of creation is humanity, a little lower than the angels. And he places them in the Garden of Eden. And he gives them free will, the freedom to choose to love him or not, just like the angels have. And Satan said, I know my plan. I will ruin this new creation. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, that ancient devil who is Satan, was more crafty, more subtle, more shrewd than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And remember in chapter 2, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, an intimate covenant name? Now watch how crafty Satan is. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Why, I can hardly believe that. Now the creature that approaches Eve, that the devil, the ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, the creature who approaches her 
isn't a snake slithering on the ground by any means. Now, the word for snake in Hebrew is nachash, and that's the word here. But the etymology, the, 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 the root meaning of nachash is the shining one, a snake slithering through the wet morning grass, sparkles in the morning light. The shining one is literally snake. This is a creature. As the great Bible scholar and teacher, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan said, the personality that approached the mother of us all in the garden was not a snake, evidently inferior to her, but a shining one, apparently superior. She looks up to him. She listens to him. She's in awe of him. And he says, did, with a tone of incredulity, did God really say, you're not to eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman replied, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you see what happened there? Now the Lord, he was more crafty than any of the animals the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, had made. And what does he say, the serpent? Did God Elohim, he doesn't use the Yahweh because he's not part of an intimate covenant relationship with God. And Eve picks up the verbal pattern. We may eat from any fruit, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God, Elohim, did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, is that what God said? No, he didn't. If you turn over to Genesis chapter 2, at verse 16, and the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. He said nothing at all about touching it. Now, when Adam wakes up and Eve is standing before him and he breaks into poetry, they chat. And Eve said, my, it's beautiful here. Why, it's like the Garden of Eden. <laughs> It's paradise. And Adam said, yes, and it's all ours. God has given all of this to us to creatively manage and to care for. You mean this belongs to us? It sure does. And my, look at the trees, all the beautiful fruit on the trees. This is all ours? Yes, it is. Well, except for one tree in the middle of the garden, here, let me show you this tree. Now, God said not to eat the fruit from this tree or we will die. Now, I don't know what die is because it's never happened before, but it can't be good. So don't eat the fruit from this tree. In fact, don't even touch the tree, just stay away from it. Okay. Now, the serpent says, did God really say you must not eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, picking up the verbal pattern and being subtly, ever so subtly undermined. How did God create? By speaking. Let there be X. How does Satan uncreate? How does he destroy? By a subtle turn of word. 
God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, she adds, or you will die, which leaves an opening for the serpent, who simply puts his hand against the tree and says, you won't die. In fact, if you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil, and presumably like me, a much more glorious creature than Eve, who is touching the tree and saying, you won't die. In fact, you'll become just like me and God. Remember, it was Satan, Lucifer, who wanted to be like God. Well, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And then she went looking for Adam and she seduced him with lecherous looks. No, that's not what happened. She ate the fruit, she took the fruit from the tree and ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her. He was standing right there and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Something happens. They both eat the fruit. And what was the fruit? An apple? No, we're not told. But the problem wasn't the apples on the tree, it was the pear on the ground. <laughs> oh. Their eyes were open and they realized they were naked. Something physical happens. They suddenly look at one another and they recoil in horror. <gasps> Something happens. In chapters 1 and 2, we see humanity in a perfect, sinless condition. Sin has not entered the world. Humanity is created to be immortal, and in chapters 1 and 2, they are perfect, sinless humanity. Remember, each act of creation leads toward completion and, per and perfection. And what's the final act of creation? Humanity, who is complete and perfect and sinless and eternal. And once they sin, that changes. And I think something physical happens to them. If you think back to the Gospels, to the story of the Transfiguration, that story begins when Jesus takes his disciples from Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, 60 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. And the only thing that happens there is Peter's confession of faith. Caesarea Philippi is a center of worship for the pagan god Pan. Pan is a god, well, I think of him as the god of the good time. He's the god of, uh, of, of drunken parties and orgies, and we get the word panic, pandemonium, all from the name Pan. And it's a very lovely location. We travel there when we go to Israel. But Jesus went all that way, and the only thing that happens, he said to the disciples, who do people say I am, in contrast to what you're seeing here? Well, some say a prophet, some say a teacher, and so on. But he said, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered for the group, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
Up to that point in the gospel story, the big question has been, the big question in the mind of the disciples, who is this man who can say and do such things? Now they know. Peter's confession of faith at Caesarea Philippi is the turning point in the story. And he says, yes, that's right. And then he takes them to a high mountain where he's transfigured. Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, are with him. Where is the high mountain? From Caesarea Philippi, you can look north, Mount Hermon, 10,000 foot high Mount Hermon, snow-capped most of the year, is where they go. And on that mountain, he is transfigured before their very eyes. And with him is Moses and Elijah. He's transfigured. The Greek word is metamorphosized. It's not like he suddenly just gets shiny, but it's like caterpillar to butterfly. And I think most people see that as Jesus shining forth in his full divinity. I would argue otherwise. I would argue that what we see in the transfiguration is Jesus in his full, sinless humanity revealed. Moses and Elijah are there. And a voice from heaven says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter's confession of faith at Caesarea Philippi is validated by God the Father in the presence of two credible witnesses, as demanded by Deuteronomy, Moses and Elijah. And you can't get more credible than those two. So after the transfiguration, we know that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is both fully divine and fully human. And I think of the transfiguration, we see him in his pure, sinless humanity, as if the veil is taken off. If that's the case, Adam and Eve in chapters 1 and 2 would have looked just like that. And when sin enters the world, it's like the reversal of the transfiguration. They're, they suddenly step back, and they, something has happened. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Or as the 1560 Geneva Bible reads, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves britches. <laughs> <laughs> then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In these days, Adam and Eve and God would go for an afternoon walk before tea. They hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, called to the man, where are you? As if God doesn't know. <laughs> this is a scene, well, the kind of scene you might see play out when a mother is in the kitchen and there's a crash in the living room. And she comes into the living room and the lamp is broken on the floor and the little two-year-old is hiding behind the couch with his butt and feet sticking out. And she says, Jimmy, where are you? <laughs> he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now there are those Bible teachers and scholars who say God didn't know, that God is limited in his knowledge. I don't think so. 
any mother has seen this scene with the child. Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, well, the woman that you put here with me, she made me do it. You know, he blames her. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. They're blaming everyone else. So the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, said to the serpent, Nahash, the shining one, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Notice he wasn't doing that at the beginning of chapter 3. And he's not literally transformed to an, into a snake at this point, but metaphorically he certainly is. You could say to a person, well, I could say to Don, Don is a lion. He is strong, courageous, tough, the king of the jungle. And you would understand by my saying that Don is a lion, something about the nature of his character. But he doesn't suddenly transform into a big cat, right? And when God says to Nahash, the shining one, because you have done this, you will crawl on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. You will be loathed. You, you are a snake. In the same way that I might say Don is a lion. And... I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. The offspring of the woman will defeat you, and you will wound him in the process. Reading this chapter and this verse, 15, from a Christian perspective, we see the very first foreshadowing of one who will come, who will defeat Satan and death and reverse this curse. It's the very first, through Christian eyes, the very first messianic prophecy. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Notice, it won't suddenly become painful giving birth. Giving birth has always been painful. I mean, I wouldn't know personally, but I would think that something the size, shape, and weight of a bowling ball exiting your body's got to hurt, right? <laughs> but I will greatly increase your pains. In what way? With pain, you will give birth to children. That is, the birth of a child is a wonderful thing. It's a, a great blessing, a time for rejoicing, a new life coming into the world. But into a fallen world is a whole different story. When you give birth to a child now, it's a double-edged sword. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of happiness and blessedness. But you know that you're bringing a child into a very dangerous world. I grew up in the 1950s. And I really do think of it as the golden years, you know, just the, the golden age, the Leave it to Beaver family. And it really was like that. Today, children growing up today, they have a lot tougher time than we ever did. And imagine if you were a young woman giving birth to a child in a remote rural village in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. 
what will the fate of that little girl be that you're bringing into the world? The pain will be greatly increased. Not just physical pain, but pain of heart, of the potential for horror in this child's life. That's the nature of a fallen world. And, he said, your desire will be for your husband. You will want him to love you. And he will use that desire to rule you, to control you. It's the nature of a fallen world. No more will the woman and the man be partners. Now she will be subject to him because he will use her desire to be loved to control her. It's the nature of a fallen world. And to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of, cursed is the ground because of you. The fall affects not only humanity, but all of creation. Paul tells us all of creation groans under the weight of sin. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. No longer will you live forever. You will return to the ground from which you came. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Death has now entered the world. To make a garment of skin, an animal dies. And the Lord said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever he must not, no longer be eternal. Because living life in a condition of sin is by definition hell. This is a great mercy, a great blessing, that God limits their lives. So the Lord God banished from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken, banished the man, uh, Adam and Eve, to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherry beam and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. They no longer have access to eternal life. They now will die. Well, Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. And we have to define what sin is at this point. And I would say... Sin is not an act that we commit. Bless me, Father, I have sinned. Sin is a condition that we're in, a condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful action. In other words, had I been in a right relationship with God, I would not have held up the 7-Eleven and shot the clerk. Sin is a condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in that outward sinful behavior. And the condition of sin has several characteristics. Number one, sin is subtle. No one wakes up in the morning and says, gee, I think I'll sin big today. 
It's very subtle. Notice how subtle the serpent was in undermining Eve. Did God really say not to eat from any tree in the garden? Oh, well, God did say, she drops the Elohim, and, do not, and we must not touch it, and Satan sees the opening, leans against the tree and says, you won't die. Nothing will happen. You see how subtly he did that? And we were warned he is the most crafty or subtle or shrewd of any creature God has made. Sin is subtle. Number two, sin distorts our judgment. What should Adam and Eve have done when they ate the fruit and realized they had done something wrong? They should have gone directly to God and said, we have really screwed up. We are so sorry. They should have dealt with it right then. But what do they do? They hide and they blame other people. They do everything except take responsibility. Sin distorts our judgment. Number three, sin escalates. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger until finally it kills you. And number four, sin cascades through generations. It doesn't stop with you. It affects your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, everybody around you. It doesn't stay localized with you. It's like an infectious disease affecting everyone you come into contact with. So sin has those four characteristics. And in the Bible, as we move on, we will find that a, a symbol for sin, or I would think of it more as an emblem for sin, is leprosy. We'll see leprosy being used as an emblem or symbol of sin because leprosy behaves like sin. Remember the story in the Gospels about the leper who approached Jesus and asked to be healed. And Jesus touched him and he was healed. What happens with someone who has leprosy? Now this is not modern day Hansen's disease. In the Bible it's a much broader term, but it's a very infectious disease. And if left to run its course, it will kill you. And that kind of disease was prevalent during these times and this place. We're told in Leviticus how a person should deal with leprosy. Picture the man that Jesus cures. Luke tells us he was in the latter stages of the disease. So he has flesh falling from his body. He has missing fingers, missing parts of his face. It, it's a hideous, horrible thing. One day, he was out in the fields in Galilee working his field and he had a, an itchy place on his arm and he was scratching it and it looked like a, maybe an insect bite. He said, huh, I don't remember that happening. And he went home that night and as he was eating he was scratching his arm and his wife said, what, what's wrong with your arm? Oh, nothing, I think a, a bug bit me and it'll be fine. Well, the next day it's not fine, it's gotten worse. And two weeks later it has spread on his entire forearm and the center has taken on a deep whitish purple color. And his wife said, this is serious. You better go see the priest. The priest is the one who will inspect it. So he does. And the priest said to him, this does not look good. I'm going to isolate you for seven days. If it's nothing, 
it will clear up. If it doesn't, we have a problem. Seven days go by, and it spread on his entire arm and over to the left arm. The priest inspects it and says, you have leprosy, you must leave. Well, I, I, I can't, can't I say goodbye to my wife and children? No, you have to leave now. And he is taken outside of the town in an isolated area where there are other lepers living together and he's to have no contact with any other person. He wears a bell around his neck. If anyone comes near, he rings it and says, unclean, unclean, and people run from him. His family takes food out and sits it on the ground and then backs away as he comes to get it. And it gets progressively worse until he dies. It's just like sin. It, it behaves like sin. It's very subtle. It began with what looked like a, an insect bite. It distorts our judgment. We don't deal with it in the early stages. We rationalize around it. It gets worse and worse until it kills you, and it's highly infectious. It affects everybody around you. So leprosy will be used as an emblem of sin. Now, we don't have leprosy so much today in some isolated parts of the world, but not in our particular culture and our particular place. If I were going to update the Bible and use a modern symbol or emblem for sin, I would choose cancer. Now, I don't want anyone going away saying, Bill said sin causes cancer. I didn't say that, right? But cancer behaves like sin. For those of you who have been with me in the past in our classes, my father died of lung cancer. He was 84 a year and a half ago. And in April, he died uh, September 29th, a year and a half ago now. In April of that year, he went on a Panama Canal cruise. Loved going on cruises. He said, you know, if I ever get to a place when I'm, I'm old and you're going to put me in a nursing home, don't do it. Put me on a cruise ship. <laughs> he said, a cruise ship is cheaper per day than a nursing home. <laughs> On a cruise ship, you get brand new friends every two weeks. On a cruise ship, you get great meals 24 hours a day. And he said, in a nursing home, if you slip and fall down, they can find you to your room. On the cruise ship, they upgrade you to first class. <laughs> so put me on a cruise ship, he said. So he went on the Panama Canal cruise and came back and was home only a couple of weeks and then drove to Florida to visit his brother. And while he was in Florida, this must have been about May, while he was in Florida, he and his brother were sitting having lunch together in the kitchen at his brother's house and they had the TV on and they were talking and my father thought maybe he had picked up a, a cold or the flu because he, he was kind of short of breath and he was coughing and didn't feel all that great and he began coughing at the kitchen table <coughs> and he looked and there was blood in his hand and he thought this is not good. <laughs> you know? uh, he came back home after that and thought, well, maybe I was coughing so hard I broke a little blood vessel or something, and it uh, can't be anything. And, uh, you, know, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm getting the flu. Or, and he didn't do anything about it until late July when he thought, because it kept happening. He'd get up in the middle of the night coughing and go into the bathroom and be coughing and there'd be blood in the sink. He thought, this is not right. So he went to the doctor and on August 1st, 
he got the results of his tests, and he had a malignant tumor in his right lung the size of a softball. Well, to get that size, it had to be there a while. And he knew something was wrong, but he didn't, he couldn't possibly be. He rationalized around it. It begins as a little mutation in a cell, and then it begins growing. It begins subtly. Cancer is not like a heart attack. Sudden, suddenly, wham, and you're dead before you hit the ground. No, it begins subtly. It distorts your judgment. You, you, it couldn't possibly be happening to me. It gets worse and worse until it finally kills you, and it cascades down through generations. My two sets of grandparents, four people, and my mother and father all died of cancer. I've got a target on my back, right? <laughs> it runs in the family, and that's just the way it is. Nothing you can do about it. I inherited that. It, it, it's just like sin. So cancer behaves in that same way. It makes a good illustration for how sin operates. So sin enters the world in chapter 3. If uh, I had mentioned last time that when Adam and Eve are created and they're in the garden and we read at the end of chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And, and I asked the question at the time, who is naked and feels no shame? Well, babies, right? Uh, babies and, and, and little tiny children, a year and a half old, who are running in the backyard and playing in the sprinklers. Children. And the Garden of Eden is perfect in every way. God in an intimate covenant relationship, loves these creatures. God takes care of them. He walks with them in the afternoon. He puts his arm around them. He tucks them in at night. The temperature is perfect. Everything is provided for them. It's just like two babies in a nursery with mama and papa taking care of them. What we see on another level is humanity in its infancy. Not that they're literally infants, but from a developmental point of view, they are. They're, it's humanity in its infancy. When you are a baby in a nursery, do you know right from wrong? No, you don't expect a six-month-old baby to know right from wrong. But as you grow up, at some point in your life, you know, we think of it as the age of reason. It might be seven years old for some, 12 years old for others, 48 years old for some. You know. <laughs> well, but you recognize good and evil. You learn right from wrong. And with that knowledge comes accountability and responsibility. You're growing up. There comes a point in your life when you have to leave the nursery and being taken care of and step out into the world on your own and be accountable for right and wrong, good and evil, and go to work for a living. And that's precisely, on one level, what we see in Genesis chapter 3. We see humanity leaving the nursery and going out into the world. To Adam, he said, You're going to, uh, the ground will produce thorns and thistles and you're going to have to work the ground and gain your food by the sweat of your brow. 
Well, isn't that what each one of us does when we go to work in the morning? You know, we struggle with the world. We work hard to earn a living. It's part of growing up. A person who is 30 or 40 years old who is still living at home as if they're living in the nursery with everything being provided for them is a severely dysfunctional person, as is the person enabling them to do it. At some point, you have to grow up and walk out in the world. So it's not either or. On one level, sin enters the world as we described it in the beginning. On another level, humanity is growing up. Humanity is now accountable at the end of chapter 3. Well, that brings us now to chapter 4. Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Adam and Eve raised a little Cain. <laughs> and she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And I'll bet anything that she thought to herself, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth the man who would defeat Satan. But no, Cain is not a savior. Cain is a murderer. Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy. And how does he respond? He's impudent. When God confronts him, he says, what, am I my brother's keeper? By the seventh generation, chapter 4, verse 19, Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Now women are no longer partners. Now they're property. And Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring my pride. Lamech has two wives and murders a man for insulting him. And how does he react? With arrogance. So we move from Adam and Eve disobeying God, being ashamed and hiding in the bushes, to Cain murdering Abel, brother murdering brother, out of jealousy and being impudent, to Lamech killing a man for insulting him and being arrogant. And by chapter 6, at verse 5, we read, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's how far the course of sin has moved. And I'm only on chapter, uh, on chapter 6 at page 14 of a 2,000-page book. So if you were God, at this point, what would you do? Well, I'll tell you, if I were God... <laughs> that's a thought... <laughs> I would just pinch out humanity and start over somewhere else in the universe. But God doesn't. God does a merciful thing. God brings the flood and washes the board clean and gives humanity a second chance. And what happens? Noah gets off the ark, he plants a vineyard, he gets drunk, he curses his children, and by chapter 11 of Genesis, we're at the Tower of Babel. It happened all over again. The lesson of Genesis 1 through 11, what I would call the primeval chapters of Scripture, is that left to our own devices, we are incapable of resolving the issue of sin. We can't do it. So now what do you do if you're God? 
Well, for sure, at this point, I would pinch out humanity and start somewhere else. But no, in Genesis chapter 12, God steps in and introduces the plan of salvation. God said, you can't do this by yourself, therefore, I will have to do it on your behalf. And the plan of salvation begins in Genesis chapter 12. We hope you've enjoyed today's lesson with Dr. Creasy. Logos Bible Study is a global community of students who enjoy study, fellowship, and fun as they seek to understand the Word of God and to deepen their commitment to Christ. We hope to see you back again soon. And be sure to tell your friends about LogosBibleStudy.org.